0: We turn to Revelation chapter 1, where we behold our King. We see Jesus in all His second coming glory. I'm going to do something I've never done before. I'm going to preach on the book of Revelation. I've taught on the book of Revelation. I'm not going to answer some of the questions you might have, like what is the mark of the beast, what is 666, and all those things. We're really going to focus on what the book of Revelation focuses on. The very first statement of the book says the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is not the book of Revelations. So if you ever say that in front of me, I will correct you. It is the revelation of Jesus. And so we're going to spend a few weeks... Kind of a broad uh, focus, not getting caught up in a lot of details where people don't agree on this or that, but really seeing, I hope, I trust, our King, seeing Jesus in all his glory. Revelation chapter 1. I want to start at verse 9 and read in, in Jesus' name. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus' was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit of the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the middle of the lampstands. I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand. And the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we see in this vision that you gave to the Apostle John uh, a preview of your glory As you come again as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we believe, according to your word, that you will come again. That we can be sure of that. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would be waiting for that day, living in light of that day. Acknowledging our need for you, Lord Jesus, as we stand before you one day. Lord, thank you for what you did for us, how you paid that price for us, so that we do not need to fear the day that you come again. Lord Jesus, thank you for this word. Apply it to our hearts. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Revelation describes in great detail the events surrounding the second coming of Jesus. And in this first chapter, we are given a a glorious picture of the one who is coming to judge. We see Jesus, the soon coming king, in his second coming glory. Verse seven says, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him and those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. And if we have any question whether or not this will come, so it is to be, Jesus says, or John says, and then he says, Amen. It is going to happen. Amen. I hope you're ready. For that day, I want to give you in one simple statement what I believe is the theme of this text. And if you're taking notes, you can write it down. We need to see Jesus as he is in order to respond to him as we ought. We need to see Jesus as he is in order to respond to him as we ought. Notice, first of all, we need to see Jesus as he really is. I believe our text addresses two misconceptions in our culture about who Jesus is. Some mistakenly believe that Jesus has come to make life easier for us. He has come so that we would be healthy, wealthy, prosperous, whenever we're in trouble, we'll call on him and he'll do exactly what we want him to do. And if he doesn't, it's because we don't have enough faith. You know what we call that, right? The prosperity gospel, but it really isn't a gospel because it's not the truth of God's word. You can see how pervasive this kind of thinking is as you listen to what people say when they face the trials of life. I prayed for deliverance, but God didn't answer. Or I go to church every week, but it it doesn't seem to help. Or I've tried to be obedient to God and I still have problems. All of these statements are based on a faulty understanding of what it means to be a disciple. What does God's word say about that? Acts 14 verse 22 says, Through many tribulations... We must enter the kingdom of God. First Thessalonians chapter three, verses two and three. Paul says, we sent Timothy to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one would be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. And that's why it's a mistake to give people the impression that following Jesus is going to result in an easy life. It just isn't that way. Look at the life of John. Apostle John. Faithful follower of Jesus. Following Jesus didn't make life easier for him. He tells us in verse 9 that he is writing these words on the island of Patmos. And if you think he was there on vacation, I've got news for you. This was not a vacation. He says he was there on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus because he was faithful to proclaim God's word. He was sent as an exile to the island of Patmos. And so as he writes here to suffering Christians in the first century, he identifies himself as your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. So if you are in Jesus, if you know Jesus as your Savior, if you are a follower of Him, you can expect that in one form or another, there will be trouble, there will be suffering, there will be some kind of persecution. And I believe as time goes on, and we get closer to that day that Jesus comes again, it's going to be more challenging, more difficult to be, a Bible-believing follower of Jesus. You see it, don't you? It's there. And it's coming. It's going to be worse. The second misconception in our culture today is one that pertains to the future. And that is that Jesus is a loving God and a loving God would never judge anyone. How many times have you heard someone say, my God would never judge anyone? For my God would never send anyone to hell. Heard that? What's the question you need to ask? What God are you talking about? For most people, it's the God of their own imagination. A God as they want Him to be, rather than the God that revealed Himself in His Word. And so we need to see Jesus as he really is. Verse 13, John says, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. Now it's interesting, that phrase, son of man, that's the most common way That Jesus referred to himself. Isn't that interesting? The son of man. And we might think that that expression emphasizes the humanity of Jesus, right? I mean, that's what we would think. Son of man. And Jesus certainly was truly man. But there is some Old Testament background in the book of Daniel that maybe challenges that thinking a little bit. In Daniel chapter 7, listen to what... Daniel saw verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, this son of man was given dominion, glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Son of man. That doesn't seem to emphasize the humanity of Jesus. It seems to emphasize the glory, the majesty. It's a royal description. To this son of was given a kingdom that would never end. And so those hearing what John writes here and who had some understanding of the Old Testament would say, aha, there's Daniel's vision. And this is the king. This is the royal one who is going to come again. That's fitting because there's no greater king than Jesus. Revelation nineteen six. he is what? The king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is king over every king. He is Lord over every lord. And one day every knee will bow, right? Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of the Father. Son of man a robe reaching to the feet, a golden sash, a crown around his chest. I hesitate to talk about hair, but I do have to talk about that. Verse 14, his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. Some of you have a little bit of that, and some of you are getting a little bit of that. White hair. And there's some Old Testament background to this too. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. We see that this is the way that God the Father is described. The Ancient of Days. Seated on the throne with hair like pure wool. Daniel 7, 9. And since this description is given in our text to describe Jesus. He is one with the Father, right? He is... True man, but also true God. And because he is true God, he has the power and the authority to judge. Verse 14 says, His eyes are like a flame of fire. I remember when I was a child, there was an evangelist that came to our church. And he had the thickest, blackest, eyebrows I have ever seen in my life. And when he stood up there preaching, I thought, you know what I'm thinking, don't you? Your eyes, you can read my heart, can't you? I just thought, whoa, man, this guy, he was scary. Eyes like a flame of fire. And I would suggest to you that they could... Uh, symbolized judgment, certainly. But it emphasizes also the the ability to see all things. Hebrews 4.13 says, And there is no creature hidden from His sight. Get that. No creature hidden from His sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. All things. You might be able to hide things from me, hide things from men, hide things from others. But you're not going to be able to hide things from God. He sees it all. He sees right within you. He knows what you are thinking at this very moment. Maybe you're thinking, I wish this sermon would end. I'm sorry, it's not going to end yet. He sees, he knows. He sees what is in you better than an ultrasound, better than an x-ray, better than a CAT scan, better than an MRI, better than a PET scan, or whatever other, other scan you could have. And this is the one before whom we will stand one day. His judgment will be based on truth, because he sees everything. So we see his hair, his eyes. We see his feet. John describes his feet like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a fire. I found it interesting what author says that kings in ancient times sat on elevated thrones, so those being judged would always be beneath the king's feet. The feet of a king thus came. To symbolize his authority. And so the fact that Jesus' feet are described as glowing in a furnace would indicate that the time for judgment is soon to come and it will be a fearful thing. A fiery judgment. The scripture gives that picture in many different places. Eternal flames where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And if you're wondering how Jesus will bring judgment, John gives us that answer. Out of his mouth, verse 16 says, came a sharp two-edged sword. Now this is a vision, right? So when you see Jesus coming, you're not going to see the sword coming out of his mouth and all that. This is picturing in a vision how he will come and what he will do. And so the basis of his judgment will be his word. His word. And it won't matter if you are still alive when Jesus comes or if you have already died. Because listen to what Jesus says in John 5. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming in which all, notice, all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. And will come forth those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. All who are in the graves will hear His voice. Now that's different than today because a lot of people don't want to hear His voice. They won't listen to the Word of God. They won't hear what God has to say. But there will come a day when they will hear The voice of Jesus will be heard. You will not be able to ignore Him. He will have the last word. And His word, it will be final. That's who Jesus is. Now that's not all that Jesus is. But this vision gives to us that picture of what He will be like when He comes again. We need to see Jesus as He really is. Now, it's important to notice where Jesus is as John sees Him in this vision. Verse 12, he says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. Now, what are the lampstands? We don't have to guess because we're told in verse 20, the lampstands are the churches, the seven churches. And if Jesus is in the middle of the lampstands, he sees all that is going on in those churches. And when he sends them these seven letters... In chapters 2 and 3, to those churches, in every single one of them, He says this, I know. And He'll tell them what He knows about them. Why? Because He's in the midst of them. He sees all that was going on in all of those churches. Think of that. Jesus knows what's going on in this church. He sees it. He knows those faithfully serving Him. He knows the things that maybe we're trying to hide from others that we don't want to deal with. He hears the words of maybe criticism of fellow believers or whatever it might be. He sees it all. With perfect vision. One example is the message that Jesus gives to the church in Pergamum, chapter 2, 12 to to 17. And it's interesting, Jesus identifies himself with that church as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. So when you read through these letters to the churches, the way that Jesus identifies himself to that church is related to what he has to say to them. So if you hear this church Jesus is coming as the one with the two-edged sword. What are you thinking? Uh Uh-oh. He's coming with his judgment. And as you read what Jesus said to that church, he's going to use his sword against those who aren't willing to repent. Verse 16, Therefore repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Sober picture, isn't it? A very sober picture. We confess in the Apostles' Creed every Sunday, right? He will come to judge the living and the dead. That's why Revelation 3.19 says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. Repent. These are written to the church. And if the church needs to repent, if God's people need to repent, what about those who don't know Him? Even more so, the call to them is to get right with God. To deal with their sin, to come to Jesus, to be forgiven because of His shed blood. Because you don't want to be apart from Jesus when He comes again. Don't make the mistake of thinking that Jesus will never judge anyone. I don't want to hear anybody in this church ever say my God would never judge anybody because then your God is not the God of Scripture. John sees this glorious king who is coming to judge. Now, if we see Jesus as he really is, as John did then we can respond to him as we ought. And that response that ought to be given to Jesus is, is seen so clearly here in the life of John. Now, John was one of the inner three, right? We had the twelve apostles. And the inner circle were who? Peter, James, and John. So he was at least one of the top three that were closest to Jesus and we could probably make the argument that of all the apostles he was probably the closest one to Jesus. And yet when he sees Jesus in this vision what what happens to John? He sees Jesus in all his glory and he falls at his feet like A dead man. John knew Jesus. But when he saw him in still a sinful state, I mean, he was a believer, but he was still a sinner. When he saw the glory of Jesus, what do we say? He passed out. Fell at his feet like a dead man. When you stand before a judge, what attitude do you have when you stand before a judge? What attitude should you have when you stand before a judge? Hey, bro, nice to see you. I don't think so. What do you say? Your honor, right? Why do you do that? Because you may not necessarily respect him, but you respect the office. And you know that that man or woman has the power to... Pass a sentence on that, that you might not like. Here, in this vision, John doesn't even stand there. He, he falls before Jesus. The vision was so majestic, so powerful, that John fell before Jesus. What else would you expect from a man who sees Jesus in His glory? When the Bible says every knee will bow, every knee will sing Jesus in His glory. We read from Isaiah 6 where Isaiah saw a vision of the Lord seated on the throne, heard the seraphim crying out, holy, holy, holy. What did he do? Say, hey, cool, isn't that neat? No. He said, woe is me. Woe is me. Woe is me. I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King. When you see Jesus in his glory and majesty, it'll make a difference in your life. It did with Isaiah, it did with Ezekiel, it did with Peter, it did with John. And when John falls before Jesus, it's interesting to notice what Jesus said to him. Verse 17, he placed his right hand on me saying, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death. And of Hades. The first and the last. Who does that describe? That's the eternal God, right? And Jesus is true God. I am the first and the last who has always been and always will be. One author says, I am the first and the last, takes up the idea of time and thus refers to the whole course of. Of human history from the first day to the last. So history is his story, isn't it? It absolutely is. Jesus is the Lord of history. And from beginning to end, he is accomplishing his purpose in time. Throughout all history. We look back and we see that, right? We see the hand of God. Throughout all history, bringing about the birth of Jesus and so forth. As we look to the future, everything the scripture says about what is to come is going to take place because God is the God of history. Listen to Isaiah 46 verses 9 and 10. Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is No other. I am God and there's no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. Think of that. Declaring what is going to happen all throughout history to the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done. Why can God do that? The rest of the verse says, saying... My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. That's our God. His purpose will stand. His good pleasure will be accomplished. And think of this, then, being written to people living in times of great persecution. Wondering, has God abandoned this world? Does Jesus know what we're going through? This title says, yes, he does. He is the first and the last. He is the God of history and his purpose. It will stand. You can count on it. Because he is the first and the last. And John needed to hear that. And so do we. Not only is he the first and the last, he says in verse 18, And the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. I am alive. Not just alive, but Jesus said, I am alive forevermore. More. Because there were people in Scripture, right, recorded, who, who were resurrected. But guess what happened? They died again. They died again. Jesus is alive forevermore, and He has the keys of death and Hades. How many of you have keys, huh? I got keys in my pocket. A few of them. Nothing compared to what Wayne Flone has. Ever seen the number of keys he's got? He's got more keys than anybody I know. He can open up any door in Hennepin County, I think. At least on the campus of our schools. So if you want to meet a man of authority, you talk to Wayne Flone. He's got keys. Keys symbolize authority, right? The authority, the ability to open, to lock doors. To deny access? To allow access? That's the picture here. But Jesus has the most important keys. He has the keys of death and Hades. Or as one has described it, He has power over the state of death and the place of the dead because He has conquered death. I love that Easter hymn that describes Jesus. Death could not keep its prey. (laughs) Jesus, my Savior, He tore the bars away. Jesus, my Lord, up from the grave He arose with a mighty triumph over, over His foes. He arose the victor from the dark domain. And He lives forever with what? His saints to Reign. So Jesus' death and resurrection becomes ours, right? We died with Him. We've been raised with Him. We will reign with Him. That's the good news. The good news is that what Jesus did in Rising from the dead, he did for all those who put their trust in him. So one day when your body is put in the ground, that will not be the end. Death will not have the last word. Why? Because of Jesus. Because of our soon coming king. What does Paul say? The dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are alive and remain will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so, we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, what does Paul say? Encourage each other with these words. The soon coming King. And that's Jesus. I'll never forget when we went to the cemetery for Dr. Munz's funeral. And there was a sign pointing cemetery. And when you turned in there, I don't know if you guys remember that, but there was a sign along the road that said no outlet. I thought, take that sign down. There's an outlet. Right? Because of Jesus. We won't stay in that grave forever. The dead in Christ will rise. And those who are alive will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Jesus is coming again. You can count on it. Don't listen to the naysayers who say, oh yeah, they've been talking about that for a long time. The only reason he hasn't come is because he's patient, not willing that any should perish. But one day, Jesus will come again. Father, I pray that we would be longing for, ready for, waiting for that day when Jesus comes again. King of kings, Lord of lords. Oh God, I pray that we would bow before Him now, acknowledging our for Him, and receiving that good news of forgiveness that is ours because of the cross and the empty tomb. Lord, if there's someone here this morning that can't really say they are ready for that day, would you show them, Lord, how much they need Jesus? draw them to yourself, bring them to that place where they acknowledge their need, repent of their sins, and place their trust in Jesus Christ and in him alone. Thank you for the hope we have in him, a living hope because of Christ. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.